Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. He is the French Shakespeare. No one else, uh, with the possible exception of Balzac, has produced a comparable cast of characters. I believe that you have a uh, ready test for the greatness of a novelist uh, that you can always apply, and it's this. How many of the characters have stepped out of the book uh, or books to become known quantities within the culture so that you can say somebody is a Poldy Bloom or a Stephen Dedalus, and everybody knows what you mean. People in France know what you mean. It's as if the characters invented in solitude have gained an ever-living presence within the civilization. So that's real lastingness. That's the measure of lastingness. Uh, Shakespeare is the ultimate yardstick here because he created the most characters who belong to our common humanity now. But uh, to the extent that a Dickens, a Balzac, uh, a Dostoevsky, a Tolstoy, or a Proust or a Joyce contributes ever-living personalities to the sum of our humanity, well, I think that's the, the real measure of his lastingness as an artist. One might almost say that works of literature are like arts and wells. The deeper the suffering, the higher they rise. The words of French writer, novelist and essayist, Marcel Proust, from his masterpiece, In Search of Lost Time, published in seven parts between 1913 and 1927. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Is In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust the most original and imaginative work of literature of the 20th century? And how does this 3,000-page plus doorstopper speak to the issues of our time? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions and examine the often misunderstood nature of genius. This evening, I'm joined by American novelist, biographer and scholar, Dr. Benjamin Taylor, on the publication of his compelling new biography, Proust, The Search, published by Yale University Press, where Benjamin writes, A biographer of Proust must begin with the following reversible axiom. The work is not explained by the life. The life is not explained by the work. So what exactly is In Search of Lost Time all about? And why is Proust seen by most writers and critics as one of the most influential writers of the 20th century? I'm Benjamin Taylor. I live in New York City, where I'm a writer and a teacher. I began my career as a, a professor of English long ago. I did a doctorate in uh, English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. And I then published two novels, one called Tales Out of School, and the other, The Book of Getting Even. I went on from there to edit the letters of Saul Bellow and the collected essays of Saul Bellow, and I wrote a memoir about my time spent in Naples, Italy. After that, I wrote a biography of Proust for the Yale Jewish Lives series, and I, I think that's what we're here to talk about today. And I've just completed a memoir about one year of my childhood, uh, which comes out next spring from Penguin, a book to be called The Hue and Cry at Our House. 
God, Benjamin, to move from Sol Bello uh, to Proust is quite a leap and I imagine it was quite a challenging one at that. Um, I have to say, um, Proust's Search, it's a stunning read. Uh, he's such a complex man, a very unique character and very difficult to put in a box or even to understand or come to terms with. But uh, I, as I was going through the book and reading through and I was wondering what question to start with and I got to the back of your book and I see one of the greatest endorsements of Proust and of a book that I've read in quite a while. Philip Roth, I think he writes, those who found reading Proust too grand an undertaking over the years because of distractions and deficiencies of their own might well rush to reconsider after confronting this dazzlingly elegant biography. Well, it doesn't get better than that, does it now? Very generous of him. And I had never thought of Philip Roth as a, a, a natural Proustian. In fact, he said in one interview, Louis Ferdinand Céline was my Proust. When everybody else was reading Proust around him, he was reading Céline. But uh, I think he was probably uh, attracted to uh, the brevity uh, of the biography. And um, I was overwhelmed when I got that. I might just pick up on that because I'm a big fan of biographies. I absolutely adore reading biographies. They're my favourite type of uh, book to read. But, you know, they're usually 500 to 700 pages and I wrestle with it for a few days and I almost go to war with the biography. But yours is uh, such a succinct read and he's such an extraordinary literary figure. So that's quite a feat, isn't it? Yale limited me to 65,000 words and that was that. Uh, And so I had to... Uh, stay out of the weeds altogether. Uh, there were many things I could have talked about and didn't, and I even had some chapters drafted that had to go. But I think I found the essential story. Uh, with a, an approach like this, you really do have to have a theme in mind. And my theme was the belatedness of genius, uh, somebody who seemed to all around him to be uh, a tentative, even amateurish writer right into his 30s when everything crystallized and he became, against all the odds, the greatest novelist that uh, France has ever produced. Yeah, it's quite a spectacular uh, transformation from social layabout and a guy who seemed to cruise the parties, fancy hotels and nice restaurants to then producing this uh, tour de force, so to speak. Is In Search of Lost Time the greatest French novel? Is it the greatest book of all time? Well, uh, I would say uh, when it comes to novels, I, ha- I have two favorites. One is In Search of Lost Time, as, as I guess we'll call it here, uh, A La Recherche du Temps Perdu, and the other is War and Peace. Uh, if you look for models, I think that Proust had read all of um, Balzac, and Balzac's human comedy was in many ways the model, uh, an unfolding tapestry in which characters uh, appear, disappear, reappear, uh, in which a group of people are observed over a long period of time. Uh, Balzac's human comedy is long, vastly long, because it has to be. And similarly, uh, In Search of Lost Time has to be long uh, in order to reveal the metamorphoses of so many characters, a tremendous Shakespearean dramatis personae. You write, to read the entire search is to find oneself transfigured and victorious at journey's end, at home in time and in eternity too. Beautiful, I loved that. Well, it makes so much sense, doesn't it? Uh, I did feel that there was a kind of uh, metaphysics all his own, uh, no idea of eternity derived either from the religious tradition of his mother, which was Judaism, or the religious tradition of his father, which was, of course, Roman Catholicism. In Marcel Proust, those two 
religions, those two traditions, beautifully canceled out and left him a congregation of one. But uh, you do feel uh, he's in touch both with time, with history, certainly, with the granulation of, uh, of historical events. Uh, he read seven newspapers throughout the First World War, uh, but also in touch with eternity, too. So what is uh, In Search of All Time all about to you? I know lots of publishers who picked it up at the time when they were deciding to commission it or not could not get their head around it. And subsequently, lots of readers through the years have also found it very difficult to understand. I understand it as uh, an autobiography, but not the autobiography of Marcel Proust. In other words, an imagined autobiography. Oh, we have many novels, many of the greatest novels that take this form. Jane Eyre, for example, has as its subtitle an autobiography. This is the story of a, a frightened tadpole uh, who grows up to be an omnipotent artist. The book is its own self-sealing device. When you get to the end of the last volume, the hero of the book, its narrator, is sitting down to write the book that you have just finished reading. So it's the story of the making of an artist, I would say, and it tells how many blind alleys you have to go down in life to get to wisdom. Jean Tadier, uh, one of his biographers, described him as quite a thief when it came to socialising and said something on the lines of that his life was a laboratory and that he was a thief of actuality. That So the reason why he ventured out into society in all these fancy parties and soirees was to pick up people's existences and to use it in some way in his books. Do you agree with that? Yes, my own view, and I, I, think it, uh, I think this would be Tadier's too, is that uh, as a very young man, uh, he went out into fashionable society in order to be a part of the scene. But in maturity, uh, he was going out into fashionable society in order to x-ray it and to be a, exactly, as you say, the thief of actuality, picking up this gesture or that uh, insult or, or this evidence of a hidden heartbreak and bringing it all home to his uh, laboratory. He saw the task of the artist as that of a translation. He did, and he uh, says in many letters to people over the years, over all the years, you know, I can't really invent uh, that's my deficiency, but uh, he's inventing all the time. There is no, there's almost no figure in, in In Search of Lost Time that is simply a transcription uh, of actuality. The, the uh, Baron de Charlus is not Robert de Montesquieu, and uh, the Duchesse de Guermont is not Madame Greffule, and, and so on. Uh, people early on began making the mistake of trying to make equivalences between actual people and the characters. But the characters are always synthetic, imaginative triumphs over the mere evidence uh, that uh, his own life had given him. His imagination, his plastic imagination, is always at work. As a matter of interest, Ben, would you consider uh, In Search of Lost Time also as a philosophical text? Because it brings up so many deep questions on the nature of existence, how we understand it all, the nature of memory, how we understand the mind and what is certain and what isn't. 
Yes. Well, let me just say something about about memory, uh, because uh, on this subject, he is greatly original and does have something like a philosophy to offer. And it's this, um, that we are in our lives assailed by involuntary memories. Uh, everybody knows about this. Uh, and as you get older, you are bombarded more and more all day long by unbidden memories from the past triggered by something in the present. And, of course, this is uh, what he describes both at the beginning and at the end of the search. And it's true that you feel transfigured at those moments. You're two places at once in the past and in the present. And this gives you something, uh, something redemptive that voluntary memory can't give. Uh, I, I think he's wonderful on this and, and, as I say, entirely original. It's kind of difficult to square up all the parting and peculiar uh, sexual habits with that evolved state of being, isn't it? Yes, but uh, Marcel Proust uh, existed from the neck down nearly to the last days of his life. And uh, we know that he went to uh, Lucizade's homosexual brothel in Paris, which is right in, right in his neighborhood, actually, not just as a... a uh, an observer of the varieties of human nature, but as a customer, and uh, uh, may even have contributed some f- furniture that he had inherited to, to this uh, bordello. So uh, Proust is in touch with the, uh, the heights and the depths. Another thing I would point out, and uh, it's very interesting, Marcel Proust was half Jewish uh, uh, by birth and, and altogether homosexual by disposition, uh, but the hero of In Search of Lost Time is neither. On the other hand, the hero of In Search of Lost Time is surrounded by Jews and by homosexuals. Uh, so he has, you might say, taken the mere facts of his life and distributed them and animated them into a vast cast of characters uh, far more interesting than any mere autobiography could be. I absolutely agree with you on that On that point. I was very interested to read what you wrote about Proust's religious formation and his religious thinking and identity. His father was a, a devout Catholic and his mum, as you mentioned, was Jewish. Yet you write, Proust would retain the divine without the religion. He would remain a congregation of one. Can you, yes. I, thought, I thought that was fascinating, but I'm not sure did I fully understand that congregation of one. Was it that his, his own drive and belief on how he understood the world, was it? That he didn't need any book or religious grouping to tell him whether there was a God or not? No, he didn't, because he was working out the terms of, of a new salvation in his novel. And it, it has to do with uh, uh, memory and it has to do with the final acceptance uh, of everything that has happened to one as the preparation, the necessary preparation for maturity. There's a wonderful scene. It's my personal favorite in the cycle uh, in which he uh, has a talk with the great painter figure, uh, uh, L. Steer, and uh, he realizes, uh, talking to this very great man, that he has heard about him in another context, that this very great man used to be the silly little society painter called uh, Maitre Biche, uh, and uh, marveling that somebody could come so far, develop so greatly in life. He says, didn't you used to be uh, that person they called Maitre Biche uh, in the, the circle of Madame Verdurin? 
And instead of curtly dismissing the boy, El Steer says, there is no one, my boy, who doesn't have passages in his early life that he's not proud of. But uh, these are the rough drafts uh, that were necessary uh, to arrive at the fair copy. And these early embarrassing versions of yourself are the proof that you have really lived, and they stand for fight and fortitude and triumph. And uh, I've always thought that the, the wisdom of the book is concentrated in that scene relatively early in the book. We are becoming, we are not being, we are, uh, are artists of our own fate, and we have the the blessings of a long stretch of time in which to leave behind who we were and become who we're meant to be. That's the master plot of In Search of Lost Time. Our hero at Journey's End is not who he was as a boy. He's now beyond all errors, and he says, Grant me only enough time to finish the task that I know is mine. And uh, this was Proust's prayer to uh, whatever gods may exist uh, also. Because he was so ill, to be granted enough time, the belatedness of genius threatened him with the fate of uh, dying too soon before the work was completed. As it happens, he is very, very ill and, and dictating uh, revisions of the completed work within hours of his death. And his housekeeper, Celeste Albare, was so hugely helpful in that and, and so patient uh, and generous with her time. Can we talk about his relationship with his mother? He was incredibly close to her and in some ways her death broke him. Do you think that's fair to say? Yes. Uh, he said in response to a condolence letter after her death in 1905, I loved my father very much. But when Maman died, she took her little Marcel with her. He might have died of grief. Uh, I was really looking back on it, a, a very near thing. And in the aftermath of her death, rather than dying, he goes from strength to strength and becomes the Marcel Proust we know. Uh, he would have been a very minor writer indeed and completely forgotten had he died in his 30s. So do you think uh, grief ignited his vision as an artist? I think it always does. Uh, uh, I, I think it did in this case, perhaps the realisation that there was no one left between him and the ditch had a uh, transforming effect. I know it did on me uh, when I lost my second parent. The person whom we love is to be recognised by the intensity of the pain we suffer. There's huge insight in that, isn't there? Proust wrote that. Yes, it's, a, it's an unhappy uh, account of love, to be sure. You might even say a, a radically unsentimental account of love because it, it's always described as a, a disease that the lover e either gets over or dies of. This is how loves developed in his life. They ran their course and might have killed him but didn't. Uh, and uh, um, there was no stable love life. There was a first love, the composer Reynaldo Hahn, the brilliant young contemporary of Proust, who was a first love and remained a lifelong friend and was there at the end, too. Uh, but what we think of as connubial 
friendship did not exist. The nearest thing he had to a stable relationship was with Celeste Alberet. You write, Ben, in the biography how his love life followed a certain type of trajectory, that he went in pretty hard and fairly fixated, and it lasted about, about 16, 18 months, and then he pulled back. And this yes. pattern followed. And it really made me think about how, you know, one of the beauties to reading biographies is that we can learn about ourselves in a lot of different ways by the mistakes other people make and how how biographers pick up on this. And how even the wisest of writers is not shielded from his own follies. But it is remarkable, though, because he just chased all the wrong men, it seems. Uh, 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 You could put this more bluntly. He had terrible taste in men. He also courted uh, a a fair few women as well to keep society at bay, didn't he? Yes, he would make quite a, an embarrassing show of uh, of wanting to be being smit on some uh, society woman, and uh, uh, all this is pretty transparent to me, even if it wasn't to earlier biographers, because it's something that homosexual men used to do a great deal and still do sometimes, but it was practically obligatory. Homosexuality wasn't against the law in France, as in uh, English-speaking countries. Uh, However, it was uh, grounds for uh, removal from respectable society. If you didn't play this elaborate game, it was not unlike women in society who, uh, if they were going to be adulterous, had to abide by certain rules of adultery. One of the rules of being a homosexual is that you had to have the pretense of not being. He frequented the Ritz quite a bit in the later stages of his life. And you have a remarkable passage where Proust is with a prostitute and rats are involved. And it's a, it, it makes for a spectacular reading, but very alarming reading nonetheless. Yes. That, by the way, not at, this is not at the Ritz, though. This is at the brothel of Lukiza. That's it, uh, yeah. yeah. Yes, uh, uh, absolutely. I think that uh, uh, some of the handsome young waiters at, at the Ritz were uh, available to an older gentleman, and uh, there, there was clearly some of that going on. But at the brothel, he exercised the darkest, strangest, you could say most original side of his sexuality, which had to do with watching rats tear each other to pieces and being sexually aroused and released by this. Uh, I, I don't propose to understand it, and uh, I don't imagine it was it was very popular. Let's just say it was an aspect of his tremendous originality as a man. It's also the most unattractive detail in the whole dossier. I would like not to have written uh, that page, but uh, it, it had to be written. But ultimately, does it all matter? What matters is the masterpiece. And what, we can get sidetracked in a lot of details related to people's peculiar sexual habits and so on. But we have this sublime book at the end of it. Yeah. So do, should we get hot <clears throat> and bothered about these details? As a biographer, I no. presume it must have presented you with some unusual questions about your subject. I think that uh, biographers go wrong when they set themselves up as moral judges. My philosophy was to simply allow this hero you've chosen to perform, to behave, to be himself. Uh, And uh, uh, a biographer needs a certain uh, forgiving 
latitude, where the oddities of human nature are concerned. The worst biographies uh, are driven by uh, puritanical views on how the author really ought to have behaved. And the best ones, the very great ones, like Richard Ellman on your great national writer, Joyce, or Hermione Lee on Virginia Woolf, or Michael Holroyd on, on, on Lytton Strachey. These are very great works of literature, masterworks of literature. And in every case, the biographer is someone surpassingly sophisticated about the strangeness of human nature and the unpredictability of human nature, uh, not somebody sitting in judgment. And ultimately, it's a biography of an artist, not a robot. Certainly. It is always true that uh, these books exist because the masterworks were written. But I, I don't like the uh, academic view that biography is, is not important to understanding. I think the best literary criticism gives the lie to that by relying on aspects of the biography. And <clears throat> my view in general is that all knowledge is good. Uh, Should all of it be given the the same emphasis? No, but but all knowledge is good to have. He wrote in a letter to one of his friends, Anna, just after his father, Adrian Proust, died. I am well aware I was always a dark spot in his life. Yes, it's a phrase that has stayed with me. I I, I find it very upsetting to read, and clearly they were poles apart as men as well as human beings. But do you think he carried that all through his life till he died? That turbulent relationship with his father. While it wasn't an aggressive relationship, there just was so many differences, really. Oh, no, this was not the... This was not the upbringing of D.H. Lawrence, for example. This was a really very vibrant, cultivated, highly professionalized uh, atmosphere he grew up in. The mother stood for European civilization. The father stood for European science. And there was a brother. This is all important. Marcel Proust had a brother. The hero of In Search of Lost Time is the onlyest child who ever lived, as Howard Nemiroff used to say. And uh, that brother was to chip off the old block, just like Dad, rough and ready, and uh, and a physician and a surgeon. Uh, the father was a distinguished epidemiologist. In fact, one of the doctors re- responsible for establishing the cordon sanitaire at Suez that uh, helped to stop uh, the influx of cholera. Uh, the son, Robert Proust, a really very impressive person, was a surgeon and a heroic surgeon in the First World War. In fact, he kept uh, his surgical tent in operation when it was under fire. And these two brothers could not have been more different. They loved each other. I I looked in vain for any evidence of what is called sibling rivalry. Uh, They loved each other without entirely understanding each other. And uh, it was Robert who was at the bedside when his beloved older brother died. I remember walking down to A406 Holding bags of mother-sand cornflakes Guessing somebody might have noticed A little boy, big head, small ears Wow, making a bella through a Sunday mist Sure we've all been there done it. Prepare a little time to reminisce and all that eventually falls into nothingness. Oh, all will be gone. After all, 
Before you get to the knowing All will be gone Went back to where life seemed promising at first Gambling on memories lane I tried to trip through all the pavement fields But I lost cause all had changed Like the road I used to cross to school Is now full of prostitutes No wonder why the priest is dead No wonder why the priest is dead No brother when did you get Neighbors, where did you vanish to? If it's your wonderland, well, it's not known to my kind, mankind, all will be gone. After all, before you get to the knowing, I'll What about relationships? What is it about relationships we just don't get? Here we are, always thinking we've learned Only to get smacked and realize we are but mere students of life And it feels like we've been fighting to have always realized at the end of it all It feels like we've been brought to a real banquet Just to be served the brew on a wretched floor But I see, I say it doesn't matter anymore It doesn't matter It doesn't matter Oh, because me now I can't go back, it's too late And so I'll get it all going Whiles it all gets lost and Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're exploring the life and literary legacy of French writer, novelist and essayist Marcel Proust, whose iconic work, In Search of Lost Time, was published between 1913 and 1927. This evening, I'm joined by writer, scholar and teacher Dr Benjamin Taylor from the New School in New York, whose latest biography, Proust, The Search, has just been published by Yale University Press. 
Now, one of the fascinating aspects of Proust's life was his lively social diary. Proust hung out with a string of writers, poets, musicians, artists and philosophers and seemed to be on top of every cultural beat. Yet, as Benjamin highlights in Proust's search, Proust never read Freud and would have found discoveries of psychoanalysis redundant if he had. I put it to Ben, is that not a little hard to believe? Well, it's the fact. He never uh, read Freud. And uh, my own feeling is that uh, the discoveries of psychoanalysis would uh, not have been of use to him in their theoretical form. His mind veered to the particular. He was entirely an artist, not given uh, to uh, that way of thinking. However, in in Search of Lost Time, you do find a, a long section on uh, dreams uh, uh, that you might think of as Proust's own interpretation of dreams, uh, a kind of answer to the uh, uh, Freud he never read. Uh, uh, rather than seeing dreams as uh, encoded wishes, hidden wishes, reprehended wishes, uh, unavowed uh, wishes, uh, he sees our dreaming life as the, the riverbed through which all the day's r- refuse uh, flows, and that's how dreaming is depicted and understood. So he did have a theoretical capacity, but of course he was a novelist. He was interested, above all, in the mystery of inner lives, but not inner lives uh, in the way uh, Freud went about exploring them. And I suppose there are also, when you think about it, Freud spent so much time um, with his patients and in hospitals that he didn't have a lot of time in his life for a lot of the heavy socialising that Proust did get on with. Uh, well, that's true. Uh, Freud belonged to no beau monde, that's for sure. Uh, and uh, um, let's say their social calendars were very, very different. You you write very humorously about um, Proust meeting James Joyce. He was at a party and I think Picasso and Stravinsky uh, were at it also lots of different interesting intellectuals musicians and the like and you write that they I think they kind of disagreed over uh, over food or truffles or something like that and you write these mighty opposites had no wish to meet again well it seems so um, um, that dinner party at the uh, Hotel Majestic has passed into legend um, the meeting between these two giants so different from each other. Uh, One, the supreme um, novelist working in the English language, the other, the supreme novelist working in the French language. That that meeting was a dud, uh, and uh, I don't know all the reasons why, but I do know of other cases where uh, 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 comparable giants met and there was just no chemistry. Uh, uh, There seems to have been none between them. They were perfectly polite, one asking the other, I think it was Proust asking Joyce if he liked truffles and so on, uh, but uh, uh, there was no subsequent attempt to meet again. Do you think Joyce would have given Sol Bellow an equally hard time? I know you've you've written extensively on Sol Bellow. Do you think there would have been a different meeting of minds there? Uh, I can't speculate on that, but I'll tell you that another failed meeting between giants was the one that took place at the Hotel Pont Royal in Paris between Samuel Beckett and Saul Bellow. Uh, They were very eager to meet each other. Beckett particularly had admired Humboldt's gift and was eager to meet this writer so different from himself. 
But the meeting produced uh, um, nothing at all. Sometimes these very great men just end up looking at their shoes. Yeah, you can't you can't predict these things, and you wonder where competition uh, um, plays a part, or possibly a little intimidated creatively or otherwise. And these are the kind of emotional constraints that we all work with and under, and that's something that you cannot figure out in advance. Sure, you can't. Yes, it, it, it's true because when Wordsworth and Coleridge met, literary history was changed. Yeah. Uh, it was one of the most glorious meetings in in all of literary history. It just doesn't always work out that way. Can I ask you, there was, you mentioned in the book that um, that Proust used to uh, write the conclusions first and then work back. But within that, there was a synergy or, um, or some concurrence with the very start of the book. Well, I would put it this way. Uh, uh, Proust used to say, I, I, I wrote uh, the end uh, before, before the beginning, and people thought this was just a deliberate attempt at being uh, paradoxical. But the reality is that the two ends of this great bridge were being composed, you can see now from the manuscript history, were being composed simultaneously, and the bridge between uh, subsequently. I loved reading about Rilke and how Rilke first recognised his uh, his genius. And you write about Edith Wharton and Henry James. Yet so many other writers, thinkers, spiritualists uh, and, and so on categorically dismissed him. So it's amazing that you can have this genius and then there's others who just see empty void, isn't it? Well, there's some people who really enroll themselves in history and history of taste by being the first to figure out that something very important and very new is happening. Uh, the first people to recognize the unique genius of Balanchine in ballet, the first people to have recognized Matisse or Picasso. Similarly, the first people to have recognized the genius of Marcel Proust, and they included, as you say, Rilke and uh, Edith Wharton and, and the very elderly Henry James. Uh, uh, it seems that uh, Swan's Way was one of the last books he read. And they're all looking ultimately in, in their books for truth and how it's understood in society and the contradictions one in it, in all their uh, books. They're all looking for the, the same old truth made new in some artistic way. Ben, I was very interested to um, to read what you wrote about the law of literary biography, and you quote uh, Jean uh, Teddy, one of Proust's main biographers. The best, I would say. Yeah, and he says, in relation to the law of literary biographies, that um, someone who plays a walk-on part in real life may become an important character in a book, <sighs> because an image which coincides with one's secret expectations may resound in the imagination for a long time. In yeah. contrast, old friends, brothers, even lovers, may disappear without trace. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's true, but this is the work of the recombinative imagination, which is a uh, transforming, not a, not a, a recording device. And uh, uh, um, people Proust knew uh, not very well, like Charles Ass, for example, become all important to the book. Uh, Charles Ass uh, contributes much more to the figure of Charles Swann than does uh, Charles A. Frussy, a man he knew much better. Uh, but uh, uh, isn't this how novelists move through the world? 
always pocketing uh, this element or that element from real life, and what they create is a kind of magpie's nest that is made of all of this experience, but promiscuously recombined. It's possibly part of their magic. Can I ask you, the Dreyfus affair loomed largely through his 20s and in a lot of ways it formulated a lot of his thinking. What I found so unusual was that here we have Proust going to all these high society parties or salons as you call them and um, he's with all these socialites who are very anti-Semitic, very anti-Jew, yet he's able to keep quiet, yet privately support the reputation of Dreyfus and the freeing of Dreyfus. So I'm just wondering how he lived that double life. I went into this project assuming that Marcel Proust's passion for uh, the advocacy of uh, Captain Dreyfus and his innocence was motivated by some kind of Jewish feeling. I was wrong about that. Marcel Proust didn't feel Jewish. Uh, He just uh, knew his mother was. Yet he and his brother Robert were motivated by the realization, two years after the, the fact of the captain's condemnation, that this had been a gross miscarriage of justice, and it was a political, not a, not a, an ethnic uh, feeling he had. It was a Republican feeling that the whole of the Republic was jeopardized if a, a, a miscarriage of justice like this was allowed to stand. And um, this was his motive. This was the motive of, of many Jews who were on the side of Dreyfus, uh, uh, they felt French first and Jewish second in the matter. Uh, and then there were people who felt uh, uh, endangered as Jews. Uh, if this could be done to one Jew, it could be done to large numbers. And, of course, a generation later, that is what happened in France with the fall of the Third Republic. But uh, within the household, we know that the father, Dr. Proust, was uh, anti Dreyfusard and didn't speak to the boys for two weeks after they uh, went around getting signatures on a petition. It was an event that tore France in two, but the truth was all on one side. Uh, The captain had been framed by people within the army who were who needed a scapegoat, and uh, uh, the real traitor, uh, a man named Esterhazy, uh, was only very belatedly exposed. The damage done to society was something quite serious uh, and lasting, though, because it, it revealed certain terrible fault lines in the society, and um, it put uh, the Jews of France on alert that uh, they were not as at home uh, as they imagined. But it must have been so very difficult for Proust there in society when the majority seemed to really um, be anti-Dreyfus and also be very anti-Jew. Do you think he was able to forgive some of his supposed friends afterwards? Evidently, because uh, there they were uh, still in the aftermath. This is something that uh, always uh, has surprised me, his uh, anti-Semites in the in the search are, are always depicted as, as what they are, uh, the victims of some kind of a moral disease, which is what anti-Semitism is. But in real life, his tolerance for such people was uh, much greater than uh, his tolerance for them uh, when they were his characters on the page. Uh, he loved the Daudet family. He loved Alphonse Daudet, the father and uh, the sons. One of the sons was his one of his first loves, little Lucien. This was a family that just seethed with Jew hatred. 
But there he was, their very dear friend, and uh, examples could be multiplied. Um, I don't really have an answer for it. I think there's certain things a biographer shouldn't have glib answers for. Uh, people live with contradictions, and uh, uh, this was one of the contradictions. And he clearly had a huge capacity to live with those contradictions. Last question. You write, it's Proust who is our contemporary. I'm just wondering, will he stand the test of time so? I suppose the best way I can answer that is by saying he is the French Shakespeare. No one else, uh, with the possible exception of Balzac in French civilization, in French literature, has produced a comparable cast of characters. I believe that you have a uh, ready test for the greatness of a novelist uh, that you can always apply, and it's this. How many of the characters have stepped out of the book uh, or books to become known quantities within the culture so that you can say somebody is a Paul D. Bloom or a Stephen Dedalus, and everybody knows what you mean. Or you can say that uh, somebody is a Uriah Heep or an Estella or a Pip. People know what you mean. Similarly, when you say that somebody is a Le Grandin, or a Madame Vergeron, or a Charlus, or a Swan. People in France know what you mean. It's as if the characters invented in solitude have gained an ever-living presence within the civilization. So that's real lastingness. That's the measure of lastingness. Uh, Shakespeare is the ultimate yardstick here because he created the most characters who belong to our common humanity now. But uh, to the extent that a Dickens, a Balzac, uh, a Dostoevsky, a Tolstoy, or a Proust, or a Joyce contributes ever-living personalities to the sum of our humanity, well, I think that's the, the real measure of his lastingness as an artist.
Benjamin Taylor, the founding member of the Graduate Writing Programme at the New School in New York. Proust, The Search is published by Yale University Press and is available from all good bookshops for just under 17 euros. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. All that's left for me to do now is to say a very big thank you to Ronan Bernock, who helped out with this week's programme, and the lovely Lee Duncan on sound. We've been Talking Books... I'd like to end tonight's broadcast with some words from Benjamin Taylor from Proust, The Search. W.H. Auden famously defined the task of the novelist to be just amongst the just, filthy amongst the filthy, that is, to encompass us in our zoological identity, coax in our life from hiding, fit out our circumstance, sensuous and particular, to the secret sources bargaining through. Proust professed to lack imagination, yet no shade of human nature could hide from his implacable art. He wrote that the geniuses who produce the greatest works are not those who live in the most delicate atmosphere, whose conversation is the most brilliant, or culture the most extensive, but those who have the power, ceasing suddenly to live only for themselves, to transform their personality into a sort of mirror, a mirror that transfigures and makes immortal everything that would otherwise vanish. In the search, an entirely new understanding of life is indeed born, and within it the possibility for each reader of a new way of living. High praise indeed. Good night. to 108.